0: Turn to Mark chapter 11 if you uh, brought your Bible with you this morning. If you don't, we'll have it up on the screen. The Gospel of Mark and chapter 11. Um, I still haven't got a chance to sing with them, but I assure you it's, uh, it's coming. Just wait someday. I'll get my shot, don't worry. That was a blessing though, that was, that was wonderful. Mark chapter 11. So I'm excited to jump into our current Sunday morning series. Our pastor, uh, Pastor Tyler, has been preaching through the Gospel of Mark with uh, this theme in mind, finding and following Jesus. Finding and following Jesus. And, and, And today marks a new chapter in this story, not just literally a chapter division, but a pretty big switch is going to happen in the narrative with our passage that we're going to read today. So I want to ask you something. Have you ever been uh, really thrilled or excited about something that later disappointed you? Have you ever had your hopes up for something or someone only to, to get it or, or have it and later realized that your expectations were not met. For me, it was my childhood pet. I thought it would be cool to own a pet. It would be fun to own a dog. Until I got one. And it, it was not. Our, our yard instantly became a, a dirt pit. This dog was a little crazy. and just kind of ran around in circles all the time. And it would attack us. It didn't even like us. You would just like, try to feed it and then have to run away. We were terrified of it. We, we eventually uh, got rid of it. We didn't do anything bad to it, we just gave it to, to somebody else. I thought having a dog would just make my life so much better, and it turns out that it wasn't exactly what I had in mind. Could have been your first car, you were 16. You thought it would be amazing to have a car of your own. You got that for $500, took it home, things start breaking. You have to fix it, or if you're like me, pay somebody else to fix it. Then you have fuel, which, believe it or not, costs money. Isn't that amazing? Then you have insurance. There's a lot of things you want to do as a teenager, and you think a car will just kind of open up your world, but then you start having bills, right? Not what you expected could have been an as-seen-on-TV product. My grandmother loved QVC. And if you like QVC, it's, it's great stuff. But my grandmother would order jewelry, get it in the mail, and realize, man, this is not any good. So she, you know what she did? She'd actually order more of it. And uh, um, after she passed, she had a closet full of unopened boxes of QVC jewelry kept failing to meet her expectations or it could be something else you saw this uh, like a commercial for a bucket you sit in this bucket six minutes a day and then you'll look like uh, this guy and it shows like a a big dude or it shows a supermodel these people just sat in this bucket for six minutes a day and you can have it for $19.99 you get an egg slicer actually no you get two buckets and two egg slicers for free (laughs) it's just 20 bucks don't you want to look like that dude well, hopefully none of you fell for that. But if you did, or if it's in the mail, I guarantee you, it won't meet your expectations. You see, you can want something desperately only because you misunderstand what it means. And something similar to that, and yet very different, is happening in Mark chapter 11. The the, the crowds in Mark 11 think they want Jesus, and it turns out they don't. Now, we understand how um, poorly trained animals and used cars and, as seen on TV, products can be disappointing, but is it, it's kind of weird that Jesus would disappoint somebody, doesn't it? But he does. Actually, more than once. Everybody talks about how cool it would have been to live in the first century and see Jesus in person. The rich young ruler did, and then he went away sad. The people of Jerusalem in Mark 11 are disappointed in none other than Jesus Christ. Because it turns out, Jesus wasn't what they wanted. Now, Mark 1 to 10 have have moved through years of Jesus' life and ministry at a rapid pace. Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. He covers a lot in very little space. But when we get to Mark chapter 11... The, whole, the rest of this book, the next six chapters, are going to be about one week. We call it Passion Week. Mark is slowing down. And as he slows down, the events that are happening in Jesus' life and around Jesus' ministry are going to be really, really important in this final week. We're going to read chapter 11 in a moment, but I want to kind of prepare you for it because we get to chapter 11 and there's crowds around Jesus. And uh, what Jesus has been doing up until now is usually avoiding crowds. He works miracles and he tells people, hey, don't tell anyone I did this. My time has not yet come. Don't spread the word. I know I healed you, but don't tell a bunch of people. We need to wait. My time has not yet come. Jesus would do miraculous, amazing things and keep it quiet. The crowd was excited, but their excitement always threatened to turn Jesus' ministry into a carnival, and he didn't want that to happen. There were a lot of people who wanted to promote his miracles, but didn't understand why he was here. So Jesus has been avoiding the crowds, avoiding attention, avoiding publicity until now. Until now. What occurs in our text is the complete opposite. Jesus is no longer going to play quiet about who he is. He's no longer going to to play down the celebration surrounding who he is and why he has came. A couple events have led up to Mark chapter 11. In John, we know that Lazarus' resurrection happened right before this. And then at the end of chapter 10, last week, we saw uh, the healing of, of blind Bartimaeus, which was a very public event. There's a large, cra- large crowd. If you look at chapter 10 and glance at verse 46, there's a large, large crowd following Jesus. That's because it's, it's Passover's coming, and all these pilgrims are going back to Jerusalem for the Passover. So they're kind of crowded around Jesus. It's sort of like when everybody goes on vacation at once. So there's a lot of people, a lot of pilgrims that are coming back to the city, and excitement is building around Jesus Christ. Everyone's talking about him at home, around the dinner table, at the marketplace, in the streets. Everybody's talking about Jesus, and there's a lot of excitement around this question. Could he be our Messiah? Is this the seed of Abraham. Is this the promised king? Is this the one who's going to come and do something to deliver us from our sin or from the Romans? Notice verses 1 through 6. There's a lot of excitement, a lot of interest. People are wondering if Jesus is about to make a move to show once and for all who he is and That's what happens. I want you to see verses one through six and notice Jesus' painstaking premeditation here, how he plans his entrance, his planned arrival. Verse one, and when they came nigh to Jerusalem unto Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, go your way into the village over against you and as soon as you be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, what do ye, losing the colt? And they said unto them, even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go." Now, this is about half of our text. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. Now, you know, Mark takes a, a, some really big stories and condenses them down into really small sentences. So why does he take six, the, these, these six verses for us to talk about Jesus getting transportation? I mean, it'd almost be like, I read verses one through six, and it's, it's kind of odd. It's almost like watching an action movie where the first 40 minutes explains how the hero like, gets a rental car, Right? Be like, okay, I, I get it, but what's the point? Why, what, Mark, why are you telling us how Jesus gets transportation? Why does it matter? What's the big deal? Well, what Jesus is doing is, is of prophetic significance. It's a big deal because years before, the prophet Zechariah announced this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, so time out. Zechariah 9, the prophet is saying that hundreds of years in the future, your Messiah, your king is gonna come. Not David, not Solomon, but the one that David and Solomon pointed to. Not just another priest, but the true priest. Not just another judge, but the true judge. Not just another king, but the true king. He's gonna be coming, and he's going to come, in Jerusalem, bringing salvation. How is he going to come? Well, Zechariah goes on to say he's going to come in on a donkey. He's going to come in on a donkey. He's not coming in on a war horse like most kings of the day. He's coming in on a a donkey, all right? It's like a a general is going to take a city, but instead of riding on top of a tank, he comes in in a Prius. You get the idea. Something's not right. This is a different kind of king. He's not coming on a donkey to make war. Zechariah is saying this is going to be a kind of king who's bringing salvation that doesn't have to do with war. The people totally miss this, of course, but Jesus is taking this donkey. He's planned this out, and he knows what it means. Jesus gets it. All the talk that's surrounding him, all the questions of the people, they're wondering, is this really our king? And it it, it just so happens, Jesus has already got this donkey secure. There's a little password that, from the people Jesus has rented this donkey from. The disciples are going to go pick it up. Mark includes all of this to show us that uh, Jesus didn't accidentally pick the wrong animal to go into Jerusalem. Jesus isn't going in Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna and then he's thinking, oh man, I should have taken a horse. They've made a mistake. No, this is all planned because Jesus knows what it means. He knows what the people are going to think. He knows what the reaction is going to be. Mark is telling us this was all on purpose. We can't miss that. He already has the animal selected and the location. The disciples just need to go and retrieve it. What's happening? Jesus wants people to know the king is coming. The king is coming into Jerusalem to bring salvation, to bring his kingdom. Well, what is his kingdom? What is God's kingdom anyway? This isn't a temporary earthly kingdom. Not yet. No, Jesus is bringing God's realm of salvation. The, the Jesus kingdom is the company of those that find forgiveness of sin and peace with God through their King Jesus. That's what Jesus is bringing. Eventually, that is something that will be visible, and it is something that will be recognized on Earth, but not yet. not yet. Notice, secondly, the crowd's empty praise, verses seven through 10. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches of the trees and strewed them in the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, you know, you've noticed that Jesus doesn't often get positive reception. Sometimes he does. A lot of times he doesn't. But this is great, or so it would seem. They're all shouting, Hosanna. Well, what does Hosanna mean? It means Hosanna. Just kidding. No, Hosanna means uh, save us. That's what it means. Do you get what's happening? The Messiah is coming into Jerusalem. The people are lying in the streets, and they're shouting, save us. It's the right words. It's the right confession. They. It seems like they kind of have the idea of what Jesus is doing. Now, so often in Mark, up until this point, Jesus keeps talking about why he's here to save. He's come to seek and to save the lost. He's come to die and to rise again, and people seem to keep missing that part and getting confused and thinking that he's going to He's going to come kill the Romans. But now it finally seems like they get the idea, doesn't it? I mean, they're shouting, save us. Maybe people are finally getting on board with what Jesus wants to do. Well, don't get too excited too quickly. As Jesus comes in, they're laying out their their outer garments, even branches. This is something they would often do at festivals. But particularly what's happening here is they're recognizing Jesus' royalty, they're laying out a path for him, as it were. In, in our culture, it may be something more of like a red carpet. We don't do that with kings. We do it with celebrities. But, but in their culture, they would do that with, with militaristic kings, laying out a path for them as they come into the city, and that, that is what they're doing with Jesus. Not only do they cry out, save us, but they even quote Scripture. They're actually referring to Psalm, uh, Psalm 118. I want to read to you verses 23 through 26. This is the psalm that they're identifying with Jesus. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Did you catch that? We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. This is a thanksgiving psalm directly about the Messiah, directly about the Savior. And they're telling him, save us. You're the king. We know who you are. It seems as if they really want Jesus as their king, doesn't it? I mean, does it? They're crying out to him, save us. They're making him a path. They're all celebrating. They're shouting in the streets. It seems as if the people are finally, finally clicking with Jesus' message. But they're not. They're not. It's praise, but it's empty praise. It's a coronation, but it's a a false coronation. Notice what happens next. Just verse, verse 11. One of the most shocking things in our text, really. The king is coming into the city. The path is laid. The people are shouting. Everybody's celebrating. What's he going to do? Just like other prophets had said, he, he comes into the temple. But notice Jesus' abrupt departure in verse 11. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around about upon all things, and now the evening time has come, He went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Have you ever ever read a story that was like really anticlimactic? Like a short story or a novel and you've been enjoying it up to this point. You get to the last chapter and you think, how is the author going to bring all this together? And it's just one of those really dumb anticlimactic endings. You think, really? That's how it ends? Well, the Messiah is coming into Jerusalem, the Savior of the world the one that was promised he would be the seed of Abraham, the one who would save his people from their sins, the one who would crush the head of his serpent, undo the fall, bring us back to God, bring Eden back to earth. He comes in Jerusalem, he goes in the temple, and you know what he does? Looks around, says, huh, it's evening, time to go. And he walks away. <laughs> That's it. Is there something more? No, that's really it. That's really how it it ends. In fact, when he he comes back to the temple, it's not really to celebrate what's going on in the temple. It's to judge it. So the celebration is over. It's one of those parties where everybody leaves a little early before you had any fun. You get the cake out, you get the party hats out, and then everybody just kind of goes home, and it's like 3.58. That's what's happening here. The whole city was shouting. They were all celebrating. They were all quoting Psalm 118, "Save us, save us." He walks in the temple, he looks around, and then he leaves. Mark is giving us a little bit of foreshadowing here, isn't he? Mark is giving us foreshadowing of what of what would happen during the rest of Passion Week. Because it turns out Jesus' reception does not get any more positive, does it? You see, toward the end of the same week, crowds will be lining the streets again. They'll be clearing a path again. They'll be all talking about Jesus again. They'll be watching and wondering again. But they're not crying out, Save us now. They're crying out, crucify him. Crucify him. They're not watching Jesus go into the city on a donkey. They're going to watch Jesus go out of the city under a cross. The same city. The same week. What is going on here? What in the world is going on here? Why does Mark say this about what we call Palm Sunday? See, Mark is teaching his readers a really important truth about Jesus' kingdom. And here it is. Not all who acknowledge Jesus' kingship are interested in Jesus' kingdom. Let me say that again. Not all who acknowledge Jesus' kingship are interested in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is the king, but he's here to be rejected. Jesus is the king, the king that came to save, but he's here to suffer. Jesus is the king, but he's not a revolutionary. Jesus is the king, but this doesn't mean that Roman soldiers are going to start losing their heads and Israel gets to govern themselves again. Jesus is the king, but he wasn't bringing material prosperity. He wasn't going to come and have the tax collectors hang in the streets no jesus is the king but he didn't come to free people from the oppression of the romans he came to free us from the oppression of sin now sometimes i think we get this wrong we think about palm sunday and all the crowds cheering and Throughout out the branches, and we recognize those same people would all kind of turn on Jesus. And I, I think we assume, well, the crowds were just really fickle. They, they thought they wanted Jesus. They thought he was going to come save them. They loved the idea, and then they just kind of, well, they were fickle, and they just changed their minds, and now they were against him. No, that's not what's happening. The crowds aren't fickle. They want the same thing all the way through. The problem is they misunderstood what Jesus was coming to give them. They don't really change at all during this week. They spread their garments. They they shouted Hosanna. They're quoting scripture. And they they want Jesus, but they want a Jesus of their own making. I, I hope you see this. They, they want a Messiah. They want a savior. They want a king. They want God to help them, but they want a Messiah on their own terms. They want God to fix the problems they think need to be fixed. They want God to meet the needs they think are most important. They want to have Jesus as long as Jesus comes to them and saves them on their own terms. But they don't want Jesus on God's terms. Not all who acknowledge Jesus kingship are interested in Jesus' kingdom. But you know, it's not only Jesus' contemporaries who get this wrong. It's not only Jesus' contemporaries who have a a wrong view of the Messiah. It's not just these crowds who had passion fueled by misunderstanding. It's not just these people lining the streets with branches who thought they wanted Jesus but ended up being disappointed by what Jesus offered. We can also want Jesus on our own terms. I know we're in church and this isn't a churchy question, but I still want you to think about it. And I want you to be honest in your own soul. If you're a Christian here and you're struggling has Jesus failed to meet your expectations? Do you ever feel like Jesus has let you down? You're still a believer. You still go to church. You still read your Bible and pray and you sing. But in your heart, you feel like Jesus hasn't delivered what you thought he would deliver. Like he's failed you. It could be you're here and when you came to Jesus, you were in a really uh, difficult marriage. You You and your spouse just didn't click. You were always arguing, always misunderstanding each other, never had a good relationship. You've recognized that, your kids recognize it, and when you got saved, you thought, God's going to change this. We're going to have one of those really cool, perfect Christian marriages. It's going to be amazing, and everything is going to be fixed. And 10 years later, you're here this morning, and your marriage is, is just as bad as when you got saved. And there's a small voice in your head saying, why didn't Jesus fix that? He's done for other people. Why didn't he do that for me? Why do I still not look forward to going home to my spouse? Why do we still not get along? I thought when I came to Jesus that would all change. Why would he let this happen to me? Someone that you love and are very close to died. You weren't expecting it, you didn't see it in your future, you thought this friend or maybe this spouse or even your own child, you thought you'd get to see them for years and years and they suddenly died, maybe in an accident or from a disease or from cancer and you thought to yourself, how could Jesus let that happen if he's the Savior? You you think, if God is so good, why do things happen in my life that I can't understand or explain? You're a teenager. You gave your life to Christ. And now it's been six months or a year, two, three years, and you think, man, there's a lot of stuff I don't get to do, (laughs) or at least that my parents and my youth director don't want me to do. There's a lot of stuff I miss out on. And you feel like if God is really so good and if God is so great, why does he prevent me from doing all these things that I really want to do? Why does he interfere in my life so much if he's supposed to help me? You see, even as, even as Christians, it's possible that because we've had wrong expectations of what Jesus is supposed to do, we end up getting disappointed. I heard one person define anger this way. Whenever you're angry, uh, the, the, the root problem underneath that, if you deal with anger, is that you are dissatisfied with how God runs the world. Now, Do you see what's underneath that? There's an expectation that God is supposed to do what I want him to do. Listen, having the Savior as your king does not mean Jesus does everything you want him to do. It also doesn't mean that you get an explanation for why everything happens that happens. Because that's not what Jesus' kingdom is. That's not what Jesus' kingdom is at all. Life in his kingdom will still be full of unanswered questions. Life in his kingdom will be full of anticlimactic letdowns. It will be full of moments, the kind of moments where Jesus walks into the temple, looks around and says, it's evening, I've got to go to, to Bethany. You know how the disciples felt in that moment the same way you feel when God doesn't meet your expectations? They were devastated. It didn't make sense to them. And there are things that don't make sense to us. We put wrong expectations on what Jesus is supposed to do, and we end up being disappointed. But hear hear me out. Acknowledging Jesus as our king means this. It means we need to accept life in his kingdom, whatever comes our way. This is not a life full of all the answers. This is not a life where everything is perfect, although one day it will be. This is not a life where everything makes sense. This is not a life without disappointment, although one day it will be. But in the here and now, it's not. I do want to tell you this, if you're a Christian, keep following Jesus. It's worth it because there is coming a day when there will be no evil and there will be no suffering and there will be no disappointments. But until that day comes, listen, you don't have God in your pocket. Jesus doesn't belong to you. But we, what's even better is that we do belong to him. You may not always understand how God runs the world, but be assured he knows what he's doing and he cares about you and he loves you. I want to talk specifically, though, to to non-Christians. If you're an unbeliever, you've not really fully committed your life to Christ and you're kind of on the fence. You need to know there is a difference between acknowledging Jesus' kingship and being interested in Jesus' kingdom. You see, it's possible that, you, that you're here even today. And by the way, I'm glad you're here. For whatever motivation brought you here, I praise the Lord that you're here with us today. But it's possible you're here, you go to church, um, you, maybe you even want to join the church, you want to be a part of a church, you want to have Christian friends, and you think, if I, man, if I go to church, I read my Bible, I hang out with Christians, if I pray, then God will make my life better. I'll get raises. My marriage is going to be awesome. I'll get promotions at work. My kids are always going to be healthy. You need to know this. You cannot have a Messiah on your own terms. That being a Christian means we either take Jesus on his terms or we don't take him. It's possible that you're not a Christian, but you're interested in Jesus. Maybe you've been to a Bible study, or someone has shared the gospel with you, or someone has given you a track, or maybe you have family that's witnessed to you that are believers, or someone that brought you here, and they're a believer, and you've heard a lot about this Jesus. You know there's something more to him. You know that he he can't just be a good person. That he can't just be an interesting historical figure, that he's just not a founder of another religion. You know there's more to Jesus. And maybe you want to follow Jesus the same way you would follow an ancient wise man because he has good advice and good insight. You like sermons because sometimes you hear something that helps you out and it makes your life maybe a little easier. You like learning about God. Maybe you're curious about the Bible. You want to follow Jesus from a distance. But hear me out Jesus didn't come to give you advice. Jesus didn't come to give you something interesting to do on Sunday. Not because, I'm not saying he came to do something worse. I'm saying he came to do something much, much better. Jesus didn't come to this earth to satisfy your curiosities about spirituality or about religion. Jesus came because you need total transformation in your life. He didn't come because you needed help. He came because you're broken. And I'm broken. We're all broken. That's why he came came to die for your sin. And following him on his terms means you can't just look at him as someone who's interesting. It means repenting and believing. It means he may change all of your life around, but it's totally, totally worth it to do that. You can't have Jesus on your own terms. What's happening maybe in our hearts is just what was happening to the crowd. Jesus may be someone interesting, but at the end of the day, he is unwanted in your heart. He's the unwanted king. You may be wondering, well, if I've misunderstood Jesus, then what am am I missing? What is his kingdom really all about anyway? Here's what Jesus' kingdom is all about. I love how Alistair Begg puts it, so I'm just going to quote him. He says, The story of the gospel is of man placing himself where only God deserves to be in rebellion and sin, and of God coming where only man deserved to be in suffering. You see, Jesus, I want to make this clear, Jesus is not unwanted in the same way those other things we get disappointed with are unwanted. He's not unwanted by us because he fails to meet our needs. If Jesus is unwanted by you, it's because in our sinful hearts, we don't know our true needs. Jesus isn't failing to meet your expectations, He is exceeding them. And that's why you may be having trouble taking the next step in believing. The crowd shouted, the crowd that was shouting, Hosanna, you see, they weren't asking for too much, they were asking for too little. And the same Jesus invites you today not to merely acknowledge who he is, but he invites you into his kingdom. He invites you into the company of those who have forgiveness of sin and peace with God. Let's all stand.